Welcome to Brown Bag Green Book. I am Eleanor Williams, president of the Friends of the Library. Our speaker for today, and this is going to be really exciting, and we're happy to have him, Steve Scarborough. Steve is a founder of Dagger Canoe Company and has been active in river and water issues for over 40 years. He is a member and past chair of the Tennessee Conservation Commission, appointed by Governor Bredesen and past chair. He is a former board of directors and a member of the American Canoe Association and currently sit on the Board of Conservation Fisheries. Let's welcome Steve Scarborough. You know, imagine my surprise when I got here a little early and found out that I was actually supposed to have read this book. Um, so I, I may, may wander just a little bit. Um, I actually did read it. It's not the kind of book that I like reading. Uh, it's because that I've spent a lot of time as an outdoor enthusiast and a, and a lover of water and things losing environmental battles. If you are at all uh, environmentally aware, what you, what you know is that uh, uh, you spend a lot of time and, and look back on what you've been able to accomplish, and, and you have to find a place to put a lot of losses and celebrate the few wins that you get. And um, when you read a book like this, what you find out is that we are not headed in the direction that we need to go. So I call this a good bathroom reader because I can tolerate it in a certain snippets, and then I have to throw it across the room and stomp out and, and uh, calm down and go on to something else. Having said that, it's um, pretty well researched. I'm as connected to water issues as a lot of you are, so a lot of these things don't come as any surprise to us. Um, we saw Chinatown. Uh, we know about the, um, you know, the organized crime efforts in establishing Las Vegas and where the water comes from to build a mecca in the middle of the desert. We know those of us who have been in this area should be aware of Oak Ridge and the White Oak Creek Reservoir failure in 1955, which put uh, enough radionuclides at the bottom of Watts Bar Lake to kill every living thing on the planet five to ten times over. That's actually a very good place for it. Under 100 feet of water in an old riverbed, as long as we take very good care of Watts Bar Dam and never let anything happen to it, okay? The book kind of starts out with a murder mystery, and it's the death of a um, well-educated water chemist in a, a suburb of our town outside of Passaic, New Jersey. Uh, and her body is found at the bottom of a um, freshwater tank, been there for a day and a half, with the water flowing into the pipes and out into the community. She was murdered. Prudhomme raises several possibilities as to why and how. And then, you know, his big uh, analysis and big question mark at the end was not solving the murder mystery, since it was never solved. His uh, big um, uh, question at the end was, how did a dead body lie at the bottom of everybody's drinking water for a day and a half before anybody figured it out? You know, I look at that and think, uh, I've drank water from a lot of rivers around the world, actually and probably uh, need to go see a parasitologist at some point. 
but um, I've never had any trouble with it. And uh, I've kayaked a bunch of rivers and seen dead deer and dead fish and other things in there. And that's a pretty natural thing. So it's not really the, those things that concern me uh, in water. What concerns me are the things that go into the water that aren't natural and biological and so on. Uh, there's a number of quotes in the book that you that you see, and they're all kind of fun and, and neat. Uh, one was attributed to Voltaire. I actually found it uh, from a number of other people, and it's um, that diamonds have very little use, but um, have very high value. Water we can't live without, and yet it's um, fairly inexpensive. Um, that's changing. And that really is sort of the underlying premise um, behind Prudhomme's book is that uh, water is starting to become something that is not just free, not just everywhere, but is becoming extremely valuable and a precious commodity. I take it a step further and say that uh, clean water is becoming almost non-existent uh, in the free world. You know, when I started kayaking, you could safely drink out of any stream in the Smoky Mountains most of the time. You didn't want to drink out of the ones that went by the campgrounds or were near the roads. But other than that, Randy, when we met um, on the Chattooga, that water was actually considered better than, than the drinking water in Atlanta. Shortly after that, with the outdoor industry boom, the Giardia parasite came east. All of a sudden, uh, a bunch of raft guides were diagnosed with leukemia. turned out they didn't have leukemia. The doctors had just never seen the Lamblia giardia parasite. You know, that's one of the things that's, that's happened. As it gets to be more and more humans, we're everywhere, and we're a very weedy species. Uh, we eat too much, we drink too much, and we tear things up. You know, we don't put them back like we found them. So you get into this environmental justice thing, I tend to broaden that out a little bit and say that it's not that we don't value water, it's that we externalize the cost of water. What's the cost of um, making the uh, Sacramento Valley the vegetable capital of the world when you destroyed uh, Glen Canyon and a large stretch of the Colorado River, which nine years out of ten no longer reaches the ocean? You know, we suck it dry. And we're fighting battles left and right, which are, which are pretty well detailed in uh, Prudhomme's book. That's not the only place. One of the things that I was uh, excited to find out about was that um, John Muir, who some of you may have heard of, actually walked through and crossed over the um, Clinch River, Emory River and Clinch River at the confluence just north of Kingston, Tennessee, September 13th, 1867. You know, the Emory River was his first mountain stream that, ever, that he'd ever seen. Uh, he'd seen the little ones, but the you know, first river. He wasn't particularly kind in, in his observations of the people in Tennessee. Uh, this was right after the Civil War, and it was a tough time for us. But, um, you know, he, he wandered on around, wrote, wrote a bunch of things, and even then he noted that as people were expanding, we were tearing things up. If you look at old pictures of Roan County, Tennessee, one thing that you'll notice in them is that there are no trees. We cut down all of them. We have them now. They've come back. If you come to Roan County, I can show you a tree. So it's okay. They do come back. It's not the same. 
and the Smoky Mountains, if you look at the old pictures there, you'll see, you'll see two versions of pictures. You'll see the before and after. Okay, when, it was, when the Smoky Mountain Park was created, you, know, you, you could find trees in a few coves, but for the most part, it was clear cut. It's come back okay, but there are no 24-foot diameter uh, chestnut trees up, up there anymore. So I kind of look at the problem that Prudhomme tends to ascribe to capitalism. I kind of look at it in a greater basis and say that, um, you know, he's, he's given us a bit of a cop-out here. It's not capitalism. It's us. There's plenty of room for us to pretty much do what we want to do when there was a million and a half of us on the planet. I'm sorry, a billion and a half. Right now, there's, we're at seven billion. I think the number by 2050 is nine billion. Can anybody out here do arithmetic? You know, there's only so much room on the planet. As you go through the book, he throws out facts and figures and numbers, which are pretty interesting. There's a lot of water on the planet. 332 million cubic miles, which is a big number, except that only three-tenths of 1% are usable for us. And we've pretty well wiped out um, somewhere between 40 and 60% of that as far as it actually being uh, drinkable. Uh, depends upon who you talk to. Um, so that leaves us with you know about a million cubic miles of water, which sounds like a big number, but spread out over the whole planet, it's not. And it is this diminishing availability of water that Prudhomme addresses in the book there. Don't let me blow anything by you. If I miss an order of magnitude or two, somebody raise their hands and say, you meant billion, not million, whatever. You know, let's keep us honest here. Of the 7 billion people on the planet, over a third don't have access to clean water. Think about that. You know. We worry about them going hungry. We worry about them um, dying of typhoid or malaria or, or um, something else. You know, but, but the point is, is that what have we done to the water? Compound that by the fact that, as pointed out in the book, that water resources are being tied up by corporations and other forms of entities, cartels, at an alarming rate. T. Boone Pickens has said that um, the age of hydrocarbons is over. You know, water is the new oil. And there's some truth to that. Uh, Pickens is not a guy that I'm, I'm a particular fan of. This guy, you know, wildcat oil guy, bought and sold oil leases and everything. You know, the earth to him was a commodity. I, as chair of the Tennessee Conservation Commission, was sentenced to a seat on the Tennessee Oil and Gas Board. (laughs) And you sit there and you listen to people who glibly talk about selling the earth by the pound. And they don't see anything wrong with it. They don't see a cost beyond, you know, I've got something here, I make it valuable, and I can sell it, I made a profit. So that's good, right? Well... It's not entirely bad. You know, I, I've made money. You know, I've spent money. I wish I had a, a good bit of that that I spent, but I had a good time. You know, it was all right. But um, the idea is, is that you have to have as lo- a lower impact, and you can't externalize your cost. You know, and I, I was one of the guys that helped start a, a canoe and kayak company called Dagger. 
uh, we had a lot of fun with it. Uh, I miss it. You know, I got bigger than we knew what to do with, and so we sold it. Now I'll, I'll live out in the woods. And, and uh, some of you have been out there on, in White's Creek Gorge. We had some able help here, help us put a conservation easement on a portion of it. And I hope we get uh, Will out there to see what he helped uh, protect. But you can't do that to everything. We have to make a living. Uh, we can't flip each other's burgers and watch e- wash each other's cars and have a viable economy. Things have to be produced. T. Boone Pickens and his ilk don't produce anything. You know, they are buying and selling the earth by the pound. Now they're buying and selling water by the pound. It's a premise of Prudhomme's book that this will be okay. We just have to do it with some sensitivity. You know, like I said, this is the kind of book that you read through it, you know, and you just get, ah, I can't take it anymore and set it down and go somewhere else. You know, so um, that was one of the things that kind of stunned me, that this guy bought into that. You know, but maybe he's right in some ways, you know, because we have to value water or we'll waste it, continue to waste it. Did you save water by damming up Hetch Hetchy, you know, which is the big reservoir out in California that uh, John Muir fought his greatest losing battle over trying to save. You know, he said Yellowstone's really nice, Yosemite's really nice, but have you seen Hetch Hetchy? Nobody's going to see it nowadays. It's gone. It's uh, underwater. Even though enough water is wasted in the state of California each year to fill Hetch Hetchy ten times. Maybe we need to value water more. Maybe it is too cheap. Uh, I'd like to see the money not go to T. Boone Pickens uh, and his family. I'd like to see it go to other other things, you know. Uh, but uh, you don't know the value of something until you don't have it. You know, if you're living in the desert, if you're out there starving, you know, you'll pay whatever for a bottle of Dasani. Ha! And, you know, there's, there's an example of, of um, capitalism for you. The quote was written that water which we can't survive without has very little value uh, didn't go into a, um, a 7-Eleven and pay $1.29 for 12 ounces of water you know, uh, which works out to about $13 a gallon so in some respects water is now more pricey than gasoline and that's because we, we don't distinguish the difference between price and value you know, I would put the value of that bottle of water is far more valuable than that, uh, even though that's what that's what the price we're paying. Uh, the stuff we waste that comes out of the the tap is, um, you know, every bit as good as what's in that plastic bottle. Uh, most, I, I think, Prudhomme said, quotes the figure: forty percent of uh, of uh, <coughs> bottled water is um, straight out of a tap, not even filtered. I'm I'm lucky enough that I own my own watershed. And my water has a taste. I like it. But, um, you know, it's not free, even to me, even though I own that watershed. There's an odd thing about water resources. You may or may not own the water on your land. In White's Creek, which flows through my property, the state of Tennessee owns that water. The state of Tennessee owns the water in a blue line stream. You're questioning me. No, it's the waters of the state. Well, I guess one of the questions they don't—they don't own it outright, but they keep it for the public. 
Yeah. I wouldn't say they only but they do. Sorry. Functionally, the point is, I don't own it. But in some places, you can stick a long straw down under your land and tap into an aquifer that covers three states, and the, wa- the laws in the state of Georgia don't stop you from pumping that dry. One of my, one of my favorite little islands to go to is Cumberland Island uh, off the coast of Georgia. Uh, and it at one time had an artesian well on the property at the Candler Mansion, which has since burned down. But the fountain was, I don't know, four, four or five feet high. I can't remember how tall the thing was. And an artesian well, water came out. Um, that doesn't exist today. In the distance, you can hear the boom at night of um, the paper mills who have um, put giant wells into the aquifer and have pumped it dry, and the head on the aquifer is dropping down to the point that there are no artesian wells on the coast of Georgia anymore. None. And there, there you get into the price and the value of water and the externalized cost. It's like, hey, I got a pipe. It's my pipe. It's on my land. I can pump anything I want to out of it. And that's a T. Boone Pickens mentality. Pickens bought a ranch in um, the panhandle of Texas, which is pretty much scrubland. You know, I wouldn't call it rainforest by any stretch of the imagination. It does get about 17 inches of, of rain a year, so it's not a desert. The ranch next to him, which I'm looking for the number here, I want to say is around 6,000 acres. They sold the um, water rights on that 6,000 acres for $10 million, which Pickens thought, ah, you you know, you're ripping somebody off. Three years later, the water rights were sold again for $17 million, and Pickens was angry at himself because he missed out on a deal. You know, selling the earth by the pound. Yeah, you know, this is not uncommon. This is going on with corporations and cartels tying up water rights all over the planet. The uh, Bush family bought 600,000 acres in Paraguay total. That number's a little murky. You know, you can't quite put your finger on the, the exact um, number of acres that they bought. Um, there was some question as to whether they were buying it because Paraguay has... Um, uh, has institutionalized protecting international criminals. So uh, they, they treat you pretty well there. It's hard to get, get you back out. <clears throat> so the question was, all right, <laughs> you know, is this where the Bush family is going to go after the administration's over? Um, no more editorializing on that, Steve. But uh, the point is that it has uh, vast resources of natural gas and water, and it's on the Bolivian border. So South America has a big problem with what I would call utility cartels, you know, the energy and water uh, cartels in one country buying up resources in another. One of the battles that we fought and lost in Chile was the Rio Bio Bio, um, which is a huge watershed, flows out of the Andes. And uh, it's dammed up now, producing energy and pumping water, uh, a big corporation, Indesa, which is an Argentinian cartel. So far, we've won the battle on the on the Fudalefu, which is a uh, the most spectacular river I've ever been on. You know, it's way out of my league to paddle it, but I had some world class boaters to save my life uh, every time I needed it. A stunning river, about the size of of uh, parts of the Niagara Gorge. Crystal clear on uh, one little section. They call it the Himalayas because uh, have you been there? You run that. It's on your bucket list. 
uh, a section of it they call the Himalayas. The, the waves are 20 feet high. And the water's so clear you can see down the river, you know, through the, through the waves. Yeah, you could sell that by the pound. We dam it up. We generate power. So we're not putting proper value on, on the resources there. Anyway, we've got that one held off for the time being. You know, when you read books like this, you think, okay, we've got the murder mystery, which Prudhomme doesn't solve. We've got all the things that, that we've laid out. You know, water quality, drought, flood, what's going to happen to our water in the 21st century. You know, it's obvious. There are going to be too many people on this planet for us to give them all the water they all want. You know, something's going to happen. In an interview that I read with, with Prudhomme, he said, well, what have you done? And this was his, um, his answer to the problem. I'm extremely careful about what I pour down the drain or spray on my lawn. Even antibacterial soap can harm fish and other aquatic life. I drink more tap than bottled water. I don't flush the toilet as often as I used to. I turn off lights. I never leave the tap running when I brush my teeth. I love a long, hot shower, but try to limit that indulgence. And I've come to really appreciate a tall glass of water. At the risk of offending somebody, that's not going to make a rat's ass worth a difference to the world. You know, so there's the big cop-out. This book is ultimately well-researched, well-written, hyperventilated cop-out. You know, this guy is not solving problems, you know. He's laying them out for us. Most of us knew all or parts of these things, but there's no answer here. How many of you guys have been following the... um, State of Georgia trying to get its hands on the Tennessee River water. Yeah? Pretty familiar with that? That's been going on as long as... I'm from Georgia. And that's been going on as long as I have been aware, which, you know, at least in the 60s. Uh, They were trying to move the state line north, you know, just so they could get a hold of it. When I was um, kind of developing as a a paddler, I, I got into water because I was more into using a boat to get to places that I wanted to get to for the animals, just snakes and turtles and salamanders and fish and stuff. And then, you know, one day you run something that's got a little rapid on it, and, ooh, you know, here's an adrenaline rush. And then pretty soon you do it again, and then you want to paddle something bigger. And then instead of being in the swamps of South Georgia, you wind up in the mountains running stuff you're scared of. Now, if you haven't run whitewater, don't do it. It's an addictive thing, you know. Um, it'll suck you in, and uh, pretty soon you'll be buying one of my boats that I no longer get royalties on, by the way. Anyway, in Atlanta, the, the river that, that I learned a lot of my whitewater technique with the Atlanta Whitewater Club was the Chattahoochee River, and it flows through Atlanta. If you ever really want to see how badly water can be taken care of, you should go to what would be a beautiful little whitewater stretch on the Chattahoochee River at the Atlanta Wastewater Treatment Plant. We always called it the mistreatment plant because at times the froth on the water was thick enough that you couldn't see the deck of your kayak if you were in a slalom, a racing boat. smells bad. And Atlanta has always had a water shortage. No matter how much they get, they've always had a water shortage. If they get their straw into the Tennessee River, Atlanta will have a water shortage. 
they will use more than they should. Interestingly, 2004 to 2007, Atlanta had big drought. Georgia had a drought. Nothing historically unusual about this, you know. They just didn't plan for it. So you have to ask yourself, what are they doing with the water? It doesn't burn. Where does it go? Well, a lot of it, 70% of it goes to lawns, golf courses, car washes. They put restrictions on people being able to water their lawns. In the entire time, even though the um, Lake Lanier was, is that the reservoir? I think it is. Um, Dropped down to the point that they had to relocate the Olympic Training Center because there wasn't enough water. It dropped 18 feet, I think, at the peak, which is a long way for that because that's not in the mountains. That's not that's not a Tennessee River watershed. Um, that's a uh, Chattahoochee is a much smaller watershed. So 15 to 18 feet is huge. Um, and there were some questions as to whether or not it was actually going to run dry. So they told people first they couldn't water their lawns in the daytime. Then they said you couldn't water them but once a week. And then after three years of this, they said you can't water your lawns. They never said you can't wash your car. They never stopped irrigating golf courses. They didn't make the hard decisions. And now that the rain's back again, you have huge companies growing acres and acres of sod to put down in the yards of new homes, and off you go. You know, I've, I've often said that the, the biggest environmental disaster in the United States is a, is a yard. Prude Home backs me up on that one, so we hit, hit some agreement there. What you put on a yard, you couldn't put on a lettuce. First of all, you'd kill it. <laughs> um, second of all, you couldn't eat it. So, you know, when are we as a society going to make the changes we have to make? You know, Alex goes through this stuff and he says, yeah, we're going to, I'm going to cut water off when I, when I brush my teeth. You know, we're going to use less water on our lawns. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. No, we're not. We're not going to do that, not as, a, not as a society. You guys will, you know, because you feel this a little differently. But it's going to take a major change here. And I don't see this guy asking for the change. You know, water quality issues are hard. It's hard to do the right thing. You know, I started a company. We started with five people. The sixth person actually got, got paid minimum wage and so on. And then after, after a year or two, the guys that started the company got, you know, we started drawing minimum wage to survive. So we worked through it. And I would say that we were probably as conscientious a group of entrepreneurs as you'll find. You know, everybody that started Dagger cared about it, had been active in issues in the state of Tennessee uh, and around the country, actually. Even so, one of those guys, who's a Tennessee native, one day I, I see him carrying a bucket, and he's going out. There's a creek that ran across the front of the property. He's going out there, and he's dumped something in the, on the side of the creek. And I walk out there, and this guy works for me. He's just changed the oil in the company truck and dumps the oil out in the creek. Well, I kind of hit the ceiling, and I went off on the guy. This is, you don't do this. There are other ways to handle this. Well, it's hard. I would have had to put this in a barrel and take it down. They only take oil, you know, once a week at the local dump and all this kind of stuff. And then it got around that Steve's a hard ass because he complains about everything I do, you know. I liken it to housebreaking things that live in trees. 
You ever see those chimpanzees on, on TV? They all got diapers on. You can't housebreak things that live in trees. Why? It goes away. They never see it again. <laughs> That's what happens with towns and waters, you know. Crossville and I, Brock Hill, who's now over the Tennessee Conservation Commission that I sit on, when he was the county mayor in Crossville, got into it in the state legislature because there was a bill coming in to limit the um, water quality designation of the Obed River. There are tiers in water designations. And the highest tier has to be protected. You can't put new sources of pollution into it. Well, this was causing Crossville a problem because, as um, several of the people in the state legislature are fond of saying, the solution to pollution is dilution. So they just dump it in the Obed, and it goes away. Well, it comes to Kingston. So the only way that we stop the legislature from uh, that bill that was going through is we got the Roan County mayor, and, and I said, you know, Crossville wants to send their sewage to us. Our intake for the Kingston water plant and the Rockwood plant and the Harriman water plant is downstream of these guys. Are you going to let them do this? And so they got all outraged, tough and puff, and the, and the bill went away. So now Crossville's running out of water. One of their proposed solutions is to run their straw down the plateau into Watts Bar Lake, which I like. I like that because it means that when you flush the toilet in Crossville, it's going to go down to the intake of their freshwater plant. And I think that's, that's a wonderful solution. That has actually been adopted by a couple of European countries, that you have to have your any new intake for drinking water has to be downstream of your wastewater outflow. As a result, they're getting very good at treating water. And it's, it's an emphasis. And this is one of the things we fight all the time. Nobody wants to raise taxes. Everybody just wants all the things that, that taxes bring you. And if you're a, a county executive or a small-town mayor, you know, infrastructure is one of those things that never happens on, in your term. You know, the next guy gets the credit for it. So we have short views. We're looking at quick solutions, get the brass plate with my name on it on the new ball field, and that's all. When I first uh, told uh, Emily, when I first started talking about this stuff, I was reading this book and I was thinking, how in the hell am I going to talk for 30 minutes on this thing? You know, now I'm thinking, okay, how, somebody's going to have to tell me to shut up after 30 minutes here. I think that since I've been alive, I've never seen the opportunity to do something good for the country better than it is now. Right now we've got, just like in the 60s when young people were marching in the streets, anybody here march? I'm the only one? I don't believe it. Yeah, all right. I, I knew some of you guys had been out there. All right, so, um, but we've got, you know, we've got a movement in this country that actually has the cartels worried to the point that you don't hear about it on the evening news. You know, even though thousands and thousands of people are out there. You hear about the Tea Party, which has 300 people in Nashville. You didn't hear about the teachers marching when they had 3,000. You know, so things are being, you know, um, that tells me that, Somebody's scared. 
because you don't you don't quash news reports unless you're worried about what's going to happen if everybody sees those. So we have the Occupy movement. Stupid name. They they really need some marketing people to get involved there and sell this better. I keep waiting. I mean, here is an army, an army all over the country. And for everyone that's out there sleeping in the park, there's, you know, 500 to 1,000 wishing they could. But they have families and jobs and all that kind of stuff. So what I keep waiting for is where is our, where is the charismatic suicidal leader who wants to be a martyr to come up and jump out in front of that army? You know, it's not going to be me. We just have to look for that leader. We need, we need several voices on this. But there's something there. You know, people can only be pushed so far. You know, and the same solution, the, the same problem that we're seeing in water quality is the same problem we have with our schools. It's the same problem we have with air quality. It's the same problem that we have in, in our uh, country as a whole in that our legislators, our elected officials aren't responsive to what we want. They're responsive to what the moneyed few want. Water quality issues are a symptom of the greater problem. The power structure does not lie with the people. It lies with with the folks that the economy is working for. You know, until we solve that problem, we're going to be treating symptoms. There's anger. It can be used. And the solution to better government is the same solution as the solution to pollution. It's not dilution. It's getting together and working your ass off when the time comes. Thank you. Cindy and then... Thinking about Africa also, the cartels that... um, Water being a commodity, the poor people have to go to a well that has a meter on it to um, obtain water. And the thought of us in the United States doing something like that is just so... You know, beyond anything we could get our hands around. But, yeah, but um, maybe that's ultimately what we need. Yeah, Prudhomme, that's his position, it seems. It's hard to tell because he, he, he doesn't take a firm, hard stand on some of this stuff. But he's saying that until we're paying for water by the drop, we won't appreciate it. And he's talking about tap water. You know, to me, that's like only a tiny, tiny portion of what we need to be doing, you know. Um, why are we right now? There's a, you know, there's a group, a fairly well-funded group that wants to put a pipe into the Mississippi River, and run. They're they're saying we can help with this flooding problem they have, because we're going to build a pipe and run the water all the way to Arizona and California and Nevada. You know that way we'll keep the Mississippi from flooding. I have a better solution to flooding. Quit building in the damn floodplain. You know. I looked at this flood and, uh, you know, the numbers on the the Nashville uh, flood, which was tragic. I looked at those rainfall numbers, and they were saying this is a thousand-year flood. And I looked and I said, that's not the thousand-year flood. You know, that's a hundred-year flood at best. You know, the rainfall amounts that they got, we get, you know, in the the embryo bed watershed, we get that on a regular basis. There's only 100,000 CFS that flooded Nashville. I've seen the Emory, which is a much smaller watershed than the Cumberland. You know, I've seen it at 185,000, and that's not even the historical high. By the way, as an aside, I live in a suburb of Glen Alice, Tennessee, 
which is a, a to me, it's one of the two best municipalities in uh, in the state of Tennessee, along with Nemo, Tennessee, uh, because they're not there. They washed away in the 1927 flood. You <laughs> mentioned Africa. Now here's here's one of my call me heartless. We sent boatloads of antibiotics to Africa. We should have sent a half a boatload of antibiotics to Africa. The other half should have been contraceptives. You know, our biggest problem is us. There are too many of us. The planet simply can't support us. And I don't propose killing half of y'all. You know, I propose making fewer of us in the future. So I've always been, you know, a member of, of uh, uh, Planned Parenthood, and uh, since uh, they saved my life early in my my young manhood, and uh, ZPG, zero popula- population growth, and things like that, we've kind of gone collectively crazy right now. You know, at, at the risk of offending somebody, I, I claim we need a new religion because the ones we have aren't working for us. After two thousand years, we really haven't gotten very far at making people happy. When you look back at our three major religions, have have the same Genesis story of a, a woman and man getting kicked out of paradise because they became knowledgeable by eating a magic apple at the behest of a talking snake. Now you know once you once you um, teach children things like that, they, their brain kind of goes to mush. So I propose that you know we need to we need to go. With a revolution here, and I, it's out there. We, you know, we're waiting for Washington. Uh, I can be Franklin, but you know, I can hang in the background and go. You, you go, guys. You know, face those cannon for me, but and so on. Yes, ma'am. Back on the subject of water, um, <laughs> it's the same. It's the same subject. I understand. I get a water quality report every year from my water company. Do you trust those and? I often I read it and it tells me that I'm within the acceptable means. Would they like come out and say this is bad or good, or do they just give you the numbers? No. No. I'll, some of you guys know that I'm I'm at ground zero in this TVA ash spill. A uh, couple of things I found out. If you go and look at the data, the water quality data, which they are supposed to have been collecting as an EPA circular requirement, if you look at the quality data for May 4th, 2009, you'll find that it's not there. That was the date that the Emory River hit 80,000 CFS, which is, I don't know, eight feet above flood stage. Not a particularly big flood, all right? If you look at the data, you look at the, they have data for the week before that, they have data for the week after that. And the Tennessee Department of Health published their, uh, their health assessment study that shows that no variances, you know, no, no water quality violations off that. I've got pictures of the Emory River that day. I've got a water sample that day. The sample that I have is 1% sediment. It was taken two miles below the plant on the surface. And the surface water in probably 40 feet deep was 1% sediment. 
And you're telling me there was no water quality violation? Okay, let me, let me make it even matter. Because that was just essentially dirt that's going out of there. Yeah, it's got some nasty stuff in it, but on a percentage basis, it's mostly dirt. There's too much of it, and that's where the problem comes in. And it's concentrated down. So, you know, we're, we're conducting a, a research project in, in the Tennessee River on, on, you know, are there vectors to bring that stuff out of the ash into the biological community? We'll know in 10 years. For now, I'm perfectly happy to swim and boat and everything else on Watts Bar Lake, except when it's muddy. I'd <laughs> stay out of it. But that's true of most of the lakes around here. There was a legislation proposed two years ago. And this was at the same time that we were having the disaster in Kingston. It was proposed by the state representative who represents Kingston in Roan County and the state senator, newly elected, Ken Yeager, who represents the Senate district. And there were two separate bills that they were proposing. One is that they raise the limits of selenium in drinking water to above levels basically to a level that would, would get uh, National Coal off of the hook in their lawsuit in Jellicoe Mountain. Uh, damned insensitive of these people to be raising, trying this in the middle of an environmental disaster involving selenium in their own community. The other legislation they proposed, which is, uh, pertains to your, your question when you said, do I trust this, there is a group, an organization that basically runs municipal water treatment plants both drinking water and uh, wastewater. Some do one, some do the other, some do both, whatever. Their legislation was that they were going to require TDAC to give them 24 hours notice of any inspection. All right, I, I would, I mean, you, let's make the state patrol give me you know, two minutes' notice before they turn their radar on. That would work, right? So do I trust the data? I do not. You know, do I think drinking water is safe? On the whole, absolutely. You know, on, you know the, the, the limits of those things are set so freaking high that you just have to drink so much of it. Um, it you know, you will get occasional variances and stuff, but for the most part, I, I trust drinking water. Do I trust your reports? Nah. <laughs> Anything? What else? I would agree. They only have to test as it leaves the plant. So by the time it gets to your house, God only knows what it's picked up you know, in the pipes on the way there. Um, those tests are once a year tests usually. Some of those components are only tested once a year. Some are tested once a month. So it just depends on the sample you get. So the number is just a snapshot in time. It doesn't really give you an idea of overall quality year round. But like Steve said, we are better off with a public drinking system where you actually have access to that kind of data than a privatized system where they can hide the data from you and say, we're not going to show this to you because um, of proprietary proprietary information. We're not going to show you what we've got. And so I trust the public drinking water system, but the reports are meaningless, but just a regulatory requirement. The good news is they have to drink it too. Yeah, that's the only thing that saves us. Okay. Thanks for coming, guys. I appreciate it.
Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.